Hi, welcome to episode 86 of Talk About the Passion. My guest today is Kevin Grant, singer for the excellent Massachusetts band Wirelines. This is Kevin's second time on the podcast. The first was back in 2019. Remember 2019? What was that even like? Uh, and that was episode 38, and we, we did a backstory episode, which was great. I, I recommend checking that out. On this episode, though, we talk about the most recent Wirelines record, Harvest Verses. We dive right into this and hit every aspect of it from, you know, when songs started being written, the recording process, and Kevin talks about a lot of the lyrics on this record. I love his lyrics on this record, and, you know, hearing him explain what some of them mean was great. As I've been doing as of late uh, on this podcast is including uh, music from artists, and um, on this one I've included two from the new record, starting with this arc, which you will hear as soon as I shut up here. And then Semtex uh, shows up sometime later in the episode. With that said, you should definitely buy this record. It sounds really good on vinyl, and the packaging is uh, top-notch. It's an analog recording, and you know the versions of the two songs you're going to hear on this podcast are, you know, will give you a good idea of what they're, they sound like. Uh, but it's compressed into this crappy, you know, podcast MP3 that's, you know, fine for a voice, but you know, music uh, you're missing out. Uh, you can pick up a copy of this at blindragerecords.limitedrun.com, and Wirelines has a Bandcamp page as well, which is wirelines1.bandcamp.com, and that's the numeral one after Wirelines. A couple more things. I'm on social media, Facebook, Instagram. Just search for Talk About the Passion Podcast to keep up to date with what's going on here. If you follow this podcast, you probably have noticed sometimes episodes show up every week. Sometimes they don't. What are you going to do? Well, you can subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Uh, Kevin and I are planning on doing another episode soon to talk about Black Flag, which uh, should be pretty cool. Uh, So keep an eye out for that as well. In the meantime, though, here is episode 86 with Kevin Grant right after this arc from the new record Harvest Verses. Thanks for listening. If the rock is So I am here with uh, Kevin Grant for your second uh, time on the podcast. Uh, thanks for coming on again, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about your 
band, uh, Wire Lines, put out a record this year called Harvest Verses uh, that was put together uh, during the last year during the pandemic. Yep. Um, so when when did when did that sort of start happening? Well, when the pandemic sort of really got rolling, we had probably about half of the album written and we write super fast. So this is like in, you know, February, March, we were thinking, let's book studio time for like June. Right. And by then we'll have the other songs done mm -hmm. and we'll be good to go. And then we can get the record out by like September or October or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, then everything went south like really fast and we had yeah. on our whole the only thing that was going to slow us down for the record was how much stuff we had booked um, oh really yeah so we had like all this crazy stuff booked we were we were playing the rumble mm -hmm. um we were booked to play pipeline with jeff breeze who i stayed in contact with trying to reschedule it forever and then he passed away right um not from covid to my knowledge but mm -hmm. um we we had shows in western mass booked we were opening for uh we had a show in new bedford booked opening for flotsam and jetsam oh wow and it was going to be a really weird show and that one actually got postponed out 15 months when the pandemic cool. hit yeah. and then finally ended up being canceled um so like we had a, we had a bunch of stuff on our plate that might have slowed down the writing process and the recording process but it, they were like good problems to have it was like yeah. all right well you know if we have to like back off and things keep going like this and we were turning down a lot of shows just because we had so many booked mm -hmm. and um then overnight, that all went completely to hell. I mean, right. everything was getting canceled or postponed. Like, you know, the rumble got moved, then it got postponed again, and finally yeah. it was canceled. Um, and then, you know, this year's was canceled as well. Like, it's crazy to think we're going back like two years now. You know, is it? And uh, so then it was kind of like, all right, and we we realized uh, you know at first we kept talking about practicing we realized we didn't want to do that um all all of us have kids except jeremy and we all have families and um things are just too crazy and unknown so one of the first things that i did was i went and bought some recording equipment uh to record at home and i've I've done multi-track recording before. It's not something I'm really good at or even want to be good at. Mm -hmm. But at certain times, especially like when this happened, it came in handy because I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to learn how to be better at it than I am. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I should pick up a guitar more than like once a year and try to get some ideas down. So I started doing really basic kind of garage recordings at home. And, you know, I kind of I kind of thought at first I was like, well, I'm going to let the circumstances dictate what I do and how this sounds. So I have my piano, I have an acoustic guitar, I have an electric guitar. At the time, I didn't even have an amp, though. So I was like, you know, running direct into like my, my little, <laughs> yeah. um, multi track recorder I had and just, you know, blowing it out to get it distorted. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I'm and I'm not a good guitar player at all. I can. I can write well enough to get basic chords down that I can then sing over right. and then show them to people who can play. And they say, yeah, that's, you know, let me actually turn that into something presentable. Mm -hmm. So I just started home recording a bunch 
um, which is really hard for me because I'm terrible at all, every element of it. <laughs> yeah. So, and the other guys were writing away too. So I was just posting, um, not with any, in, like, not with any goal or, or finish line in mind, but I was posting the solo stuff I was doing. And, um, you know, the guys were like, we want to do like that song or that song. And I was like, all right, cool. Now we've just added like two more songs to the six that we have. Yeah. We really want to do a full length. So things started to kind of improve at the end of the summer of, it was like the first wave was over. Right. And nobody was vaccinated yet, but things were like settling down. We were all like kind of quarantining and being relatively smart. Mm-hmm. So we're like, all right, let's, let's try to practice here and there and see what happens. So we go in and practice and just write, write, write. And obviously we had no shows on the horizon. So it wasn't like we had to keep our old stuff fresh. Mm-hmm. So we didn't touch anything that we'd already written and recorded, just wrote and wrote. And we started, um, we started thinking about, you know, when, what are we going to do? Like, when can we record these songs? Where do we want to go? And our first two recording sessions have been with Trevor Vaughn down here. And um, we love those, but we kind of wanted things just to sound different for the next one. Mm -hmm. So Jeremy had worked uh, before with Alex Garcia Rivera, who has Mystic Valley Studios. Mm -hmm. And he really, really was pushing hard to work with them and was like, you know, I love the way everything sounds that I do with him and it's all analog, which that really appealed to me because I haven't been able to do an all analog recording with anybody in a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we contacted him and he basically said, we have a window of time right before Thanksgiving or it won't be until after the holidays. Mm-hmm. And we weren't quite ready for before Thanksgiving, but we took it anyway. And I'm really glad that we did because the second wave started right after that and everything went to hell again. And we didn't practice or anything for a long time after that. Not like nothing happened. So we went in and, you know, that, that might've been the only part of it that wasn't ideal is that um, some of the songs were really, really fresh and none of like, I think we'd only played two of those songs live ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think two, because our last shows were the were midway through February. Right. And then we had written, and, and at that point, only two of them were practiced enough to play live. The other four weren't. And all this other material had never been road tested. And I'm, I'm a guy who firmly believes in road testing material before you record it. I, I don't, um, like, I don't care how big your band is. I feel like your album should be written and played a thousand times before anybody even shows up in the studio. I don't, I don't feel like it's the time or place to write, but of course, um, most big bands, that's exactly how they operate. They won't even talk to each other from the last tour to when they walk in the studio to do a new record. Um, but I, I feel like the songs don't truly get written until you hammer through them in front of people and in lots of different circumstances and you, you just kind of wing it with things and, and beautiful things will happen. And you're like, Oh yeah, I got to remember to do that again. That was great. Or, you know, your guitarist will do something killer and everybody afterward is like, whatever you did, 
don't change it. Do that again. Um, and there's nothing worse recording a song. And then two years later, you're like, oh, now we finally destroy that song. <laughs> but, you know, we played it so bad on the record. Right. So that, that would be my only regret with it. Um, but considering that we were able to time things, and we were that lucky, too. I mean, it was, a lot of it just had to do with luck. Um, that we were able to get the record written and recorded during that year was uh I couldn't be happier. I don't know, you know, I don't know what would have happened to us if we had to truly take all this time off. Right. Yeah. So putting the, these songs together too, because you know, you're obviously a, a a a live performer that loves performing live. So putting these songs down without knowing when you're gonna ever be able to even play them live, you know, what what was that like? Um <clears throat> Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, the albums are great because, you know, a show is such like a kind of ethereal thing. It's like you prepare for it. It happens. There might be photographs or maybe some live footage or something, right. but um, you might not even remember it uh, after a few years. And the people who were there maybe won't remember it, especially if they go to a ton of shows Right. And so it's a great night and it's a great event. And it's kind of like, you know, your chance to jump Caesar's palace on your motorcycle, but a record, if you do it well, it's kind of there for posterity. You know, yeah. you can really, um, you can really lay down something and do it well. And if you think about it enough, it's something you can be proud of, you know, when you're in a nursing home someday or when you're long gone, your grandkids could play it or something. So they're super different and they, they complement each other differently. Right. Um, I, I love doing both things and I, you know, I think, but again, it's like when I'm playing live, I feel like that's when I'm actually doing a lot of the writing because I'm trying different things and, you know, developing the kind of, you know, really sinking into the song. So when I go in the studio, it's like, Oh yeah, I know this like inside and out. I yeah. Know. You've lived with it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And the, so how much rehearsal did you actually get to, to do before uh, actually recording this? Well, we, pra we practice in the best of times once yeah. a week for two hours a week, every Sunday night. And um, leading up to the recording, we were pretty on point with that, but it's probably not really a lot compared to a lot of people. Um, but our practices are really um, pretty uh business oriented i guess you'd say we don't screw around a lot we don't talk much everyone shows up on time um we have a strict time that we cut off um and so we're pretty efficient and we, we and you know a beautiful thing that has existed in music now for quite a while but didn't exist at all when i started playing music is that it's super easy to record everything and get it out to everybody in the band afterwards and I don't know, you know, I don't know how somebody like my age working a real job with a family could ever even be in a productive, active band without that. It makes things super efficient. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't forget anything. And I, 
you know, it's not like there's one cassette copy that one guy gets yeah, to take one, home. I, I was just going to say that. Yeah, there was always that. And you'd be like, come on, dude. And you'd be, you know, give me, I need to fucking hear it. Yeah. Like, no, no, I got to write lyrics. And then you yeah. write lyrics to this piece of music that nobody remembers and you bring right. it back and they don't know how to play it. And uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we, we, we work super fast. The other thing is we, we've got three out, three out of the four of us um write write mute write the music at least yeah you know what i mean so i'm writing all the the lyrics but and i i usually like i'll contribute one or i contribute about two songs one one to two songs every release because it's not my forte the writing part yeah and jeremy and ryan are much better than i am at that but because of that um we never have a shortage the we have a problem with stopping writing to just work on what we have right um we, we write super fast yeah it's very it's really nice it's a good yeah, problem i was gonna say it's a good problem to have and uh, a lot of times do you come up with lyrics first or you have like a sort of an idea of stuff uh not no uh no i'll have I, i'll have things in my head like sometimes i'll think of things and just jot them down in the notes in my phone right. but it won't be like a lot of times it won't be rhyming couplets or anything it'll just be like and i a phrase like and i'll put it away uh, because i feel that it's a, it's really important to write um to write to the piece of music and since most of the music i end up writing to ends up being something that ryan and jeremy collaborate on I don't like to um, take something that I wrote and force it into uh, somebody else's creation. I'd rather like have have that dialogue with what they did with what I did. So I, I have ideas and I have things that I know I want to write about, um, but the piece of music has to match with that. And then I need to I need to kind of see what they've got as far as the bones of it goes and and work uh, with that. Right. Nice. And so, so you guys go to record this. Uh, how how long were you actually recording? Uh, I think we did two weekends, and then maybe a, there were a couple of weeknights that the guys did. I wasn't there for all of it. Um, I was there for I think the first day of the first weekend just to do scratch vocals if they needed it, and then I split. I wasn't there at all the second day. And a lot of a lot of the second day and those weekday nights, if I remember correctly, was um, guitar overdubs. And then I came back in on I think if I if I remember right, the following Saturday, and I did um did all my vocals the following Saturday. I think I don't think we left that anything. And then I think the next day was mixed down, and I purposefully didn't go um i i'm trying to get i'm trying to get more hands off for things uh like that because i feel like when i'm involved i get if i listen to it for too much i can't hear it anymore and i'd rather not listen to it hear what other people do with it and then give my notes afterwards rather than um you know, listen to something for like 60 hours straight. I mean, there's songs now that I recorded almost 20 years ago that I'm only starting to hear as music again because right. I listened to them so many times during the making of it. I don't yeah. even want to hear it again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what I do is just 
it's like takes me right back to listening to levels and listening to like did my voice crack on a certain word and all that stuff so i'm trying to get better i think part of it is realizing that you know a lot of a lot of the stuff you're looking for in music is different people's ideas and the the music is in like the geographic center of those different people's ideas so the more that i can remove myself because i've already done words and i've done my singing and i'll just say talk about what bothers me a lot in a, in a certain mix but the more i can remove myself from trying to make it what i want the more it lets something really nice happen when other people get in there and say this is what i hear in this yeah you know yeah it's good to be to have uh other musicians that you work with that you can trust to yeah for sure do that to do that part you know when, when i had my uh my band presley arnie uh yep. kind of took the the reins of that he was kind of like the he loved he loved sitting there listening to the same fucking song for you know nine hours in a row you know and yeah right right parker it. Ryan Parker and my band, our bass player, that's, uh, he's that guy. Yeah. And on, on top of that, um, Alex, who recorded it for us, has an incredible ear and and yeah. comes from sort of our genres that we come from. Yeah. So it's not like he wasn't going to, it's not like he was going to be like, oh, God, like, right, yeah. got to make this sound like a, you know, Blink-182 record or right. something. And, yeah. You know, like, so Ryan wants to be there and wants to, listen to everything and be hypercritical. And it was already in the hands of a guy who I knew was totally beyond competent and, and not going to drop the ball. And that's quite all right by me. And, and um, you know, we might've had minor notes after the first couple of mixes, but it, we were super happy. So no, no complaints. Right. And then uh, mastering. So the, the sequence of this record is, uh, is the, at least as far as I can tell, was a good amount of thought went into the sequencing of it. It's the way yeah, it flows. It, it, it kind of has to happen that way because we, we, um, you know, our songs aren't our songs are kind of all over the place stylistically. Yeah. So if you don't sequence them the right way, it could really make it sound uneven or um, un, unbalanced. You know, and on top of that. You know, if we were to put, if we weren't to go from like one style to another, to another, to another, you might turn somebody off on the first two or three songs who might absolutely love most of your material. So you've got to be really conscious of like, okay, this has to, we have to break up the monotony, but we also need to kind of showcase what we're capable of doing right off the bat, alternating around, because otherwise people aren't going to even give us the chance to do what we can do. Um, which I think is, is really nice with an album because, you know, in the digital age, it's a lot of that is lost, but really it should kind of be, you know, the album is its own entity and the songs are their own entity too, but they're like soldiers in an army and you need this army to have all the different divisions and it's all going to work together as a team. And, um, and that's all about sequencing, you know, and, uh, and, and, and overall, once you take all of those different songs, the album itself has its own feel that is different than all those songs. It becomes its own, um, its own story or its own message, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love, uh, like I'm a big fan of, uh, I always think the second song in a band's record is, is one of the more like important. I think songs. so too. Yeah. And, uh, that the song divisionary 
just sort of kicks in. It almost reminds me of Sugar in a way. It's definitely like a, a Bob Mould type uh, guitar yeah, going on. That's there. that's funny. It's uh, it, that song is sort of in a in a weird way. <clears throat> so uh, when I was in high school, I was trying to learn um, Bad Brains reggae bass lines and and failing miserably. Right. So I wrote this thing that I thought was one of the songs. Um, might maybe the meek shall inherit the earth or something, but it ended up kind of sounding like this spaghetti western thing, like um you know, dun 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 dun. So I had it and never had a home for it. And when we started the hidden, I I played that for them that that few riffs that I had, and they were like, whoa, that sounds way too much like reggae. But if we take a lot, if we simplify it and just stick to the chord changes. It could be cool. So it ended up turning into the riff for the song Treadmill that's on our first EP. So then years later, I was in Iron Oak and they wrote some music um, that had similar chord changes, but I wasn't involved in the writing of the music at all. And I was like, all right. So I wrote vocals for that song. And then during the um, pandemic, I was like, wait a minute, I could play my original bass riff and use my vocals that I wrote for that Iron Oak song that we never recorded or did anything with except play live and, and they'll work together. So that was one of the ones I demoed at home that the guys were like, Ryan was like, dude, let's do that song. I've got ideas for how we can make it our own, et cetera. So, um, so I was super happy that it's happy that people are even, cause I, you know, I, I'm a, like a lousy player of things you know i can i can hack around on a lot of different instruments but i'm not any good but i can sing okay and i think my ideas are okay so it's always nice when people who can actually play are like you know like let me get my hands on that because we can do something with it so um so yeah that's how that's how that one happened i mean i it's probably the oldest thing on there if you consider the first you know me screwing around on a bass guitar in high school yeah that's cool yeah. nice the uh so a lot of the uh lyrical themes on this did they come up from from you know sort of being stuck at home in the pandemic uh sort of some of them because yeah. half the record was already written when that right went went south so some of it is and then um a couple of the songs uh like this arc and divisionary those lyrics were written far like this arc is also a really old song that i tried to get a lot of bands to, to play um that i've been in and nobody was interested <clears throat> but um excuse me but probably about the last four were influenced by what was going on um i kind of I don't feel like I, I would have been writing honestly because I mean the world was just so crazy you know what I mean it's like you've got songs to write and everything is that nuts how can you not write about it in one way or another either directly or indirectly you know to not write about it would have required a lot of um, denial and just kind of not honesty I mean <clears throat> the whole reason I'm writing is to sort of express what's on my mind and I mean, everything that was happening was so intense, not just the pandemic, but, you know, you know, fascist 
marching in the streets yeah, and yeah you know it was just an absolutely terrible oh, yeah. crazy time the economy collapsed i mean um so you know the the opening track definitely um i'm trying to think which other ones oh all of this belongs to me a wolfie or rabbit um lines and sand um we disappear maybe spirits. Um, yeah, definitely informed by what was going on. And like, I, you know, I typically, I typically don't think, all right, my next album is going to be about whatever, you know, it just happens that, you know, despite the fact that there's some really old songs on here, most of the record is written during, you know, a year or a year and a half of your life. So, whatever is going on during that time is probably going to inform what you're writing about, whether you oh, want yeah, it to or not. Yeah. So albums end up like every album becomes a theme album Yeah. in its own way. And this one is no different. It just so happens that um, things were astronomically screwed up at the time that I was writing a lot of it. And the next one will be um, similar in some ways uh, and different in many others, but yeah, and, and even even the title. Uh, so the title I I took out of the lyrics for this arc, um, where harvest is used as a verb, you harvest verses and pull them from the ground. But I was also thinking that it's kind of this double entendre of like, are these songs about the harvest? And I was kind of thinking, you know, the harvest is, you know, the the late autumn or late summer, early autumn, where everything is dying and everything is ending. And that was sort of a season that the world I felt could be entering into, like maybe this is the end. And so these are songs about the harvest. And um, it's also songs about drawing music out of the ground. Um, so I, yeah, it, it, it was super informed by the times, but not, not as like a deliberate act on my part or anything. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, I did notice there's a lot of themes of, of stuff like sort of coming out of the ground and going into the ground and, and you know, sort of things ending and death yeah and our, our album artwork was sort of pulled off of that as well um this is yeah, a book called the, uh, the cabinet of uh, natural curiosities yeah it's uh it's from a book that was put together uh not written but put together by this guy named alberta seba i think he was from the netherlands um he was this wealthy guy who uh, just collected, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Taxidermy in a sense. So he would collect, uh, he would collect and preserve animals um, and plants and shells from all over the world. And he kept them in his house as like almost a private museum. And I guess that was sort of common back then. I mean, there was no internet and there weren't really zoos per se. So if you were super wealthy, you would just collect these things either on your travels or you would pay to have people send them to you. And then he would set up the stuff in his house. So when people visit, he could be like, check out all my cool stuff. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. I have a two headed goat in a jar of formaldehyde <laughs> or whatever. Right. And then what ended up happening quite often is these guys with their wealth would then hire artists and engravers to illustrate everything that they had. 
so that it would then, you know, stand the test of time in this book. So that's the book that he had made. And it's been reproduced a few times, uh, but it's so old that um, all of the images have passed into um, public domain. So I really thought that there are a couple of things driving it. I, you know, I love flip just flipping through this book and looking at all these pictures, but then I was sort of struck by um, how the snakes look compared to some of the images we had used in the past. You know, our, our last EP was textiles with all these threads. And then before that, it was a jumble of electrical cords on the ground. And I thought, you know, these, these snakes really plays off that image of wire lines. Um, we're talking about, you know, the nervous system and the bones and the electrical systems of all these animals. It, I was also struck, you know, when the pandemic hit, there wasn't a lot to do, obviously. And I live on this street that um, a few blocks from my house, it, run, it runs along New Bedford Harbor on the Fairhaven side. And a few blocks away, there's an old revolutionary war fort at the end where the, it opens up to the, the ocean. So I was taking these walks early at like sunrise and there, were, there was no traffic. I mean, even less than there normally is at sunrise. There were no airplanes, no people, and just massive amounts of birds and birds and rabbits and um, occasional coyotes and stuff. And it was like this resurgence of, of nature because people had sort of had to do this retreat. So I thought that I had that on my mind too, you know, and, uh, and the guys in the band, you know, for every idea that I might have that people like, there's like 10 that I have that go into the wood chipper. But, but they all were on board um, with what I was thinking with that stuff. And, and Ryan really took the lead, Ryan, our bassist. Um, I had some, I had some that I liked. I mean, I must've probably sent them like 70. I mean, the book is a big book. Yeah. And then I gave the book to Ryan and he came back with a bunch that he liked and that ended up being like our, our list. Yeah. And now the, the person who did this, uh, Kit. Yeah. Uh, Kit is Ryan's cousin. Okay. Um, and they're a graphic designer by trade. Right. And just did an absolutely fantastic job for yeah. for yeah. us. And I, um, my wife did a little bit of the layout. My wife's a was a fashion designer and is now an interior designer, so she knows her way around, you know, graphic design and stuff. So when um, the label picked us up, all that we had put together at that point was the front cover. So there was no back cover, no lyric sheet, no labels done, and we were in a race to get the pressing plant working on the actual album because they're so backed up. But in order to do that, we needed the layout done for the labels themselves. So that part was done by my wife just because I, I knew we could get it done really fast. And she did a great job. I'm super thankful to her as always. But the rest was done by Kit. And um, we, we took some time with it. But, you know, we, were, we wanted to rush. We had, a lot, we had a lot more time with the album artwork because that just had to be done by the time the record was pressed. and. Um, Although we wanted it done quickly, we also didn't want to cut any corners at all. Uh, I think I think physical albums in the days of digital music, it's 100% about the care 
oh, that's yeah. done in the packaging. Yeah. No, and you can see that with, I think we had a uh, thread on uh, Facebook a while back about just some of the just completely terrible fucking oh. <laughs> like yeah. anything that's come out on Tang Records ever, you know, and just. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on in some people's minds. <laughs> I understand, I understand it more when all there was was physical releases. Right. So some bands could be like, ah, who cares? Oh, yeah, just but, slip one through, right? Whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, you've got the cassette. Where it would just be the square yeah. album artwork at the top. Oh, yeah. Oh, all, yeah, the, yeah. all the SST cassettes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then it would just be typed in like generic <laughs> font at the bottom. Yeah. Just yeah, exactly. so bad. Yeah. But um, but I don't know why people are still on that mindset. I mean, and there are people out there, big people on big labels putting out records where I'm like, you've got to be kidding me with this artwork. Yeah. There's like a Quiet Riot album. And, you know, not oh. that those bands were ever like purveyors of. Uh, you know, right. of, 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 uh, refinement, <laughs> graphic design, but still, right. um, but so, yeah, it's cool that, you know, bands like you, uh, you guys are, are mindful of that because I think uh, just the people into uh, music that, you know, want to spend money on stuff nowadays uh, want a, a good product. And so mm-hmm. it definitely looks, uh, looks pretty awesome. Thank you. Great job. Yeah. Uh, just the way that li- the lyrics are presented. And, yeah. It's nice. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to um, really say, I can't say enough for the label, too, because every little thing like that costs money and they, you didn't have to do that. Right. Yeah. right. And, but, you know, um, James at Blind Rage, he, he 100% understands. And a lot of the records he puts out, if they're not like that, it's because it doesn't suit the band. You know right. what I mean? And, yeah, yeah. And for some bands, it's not that album would look ridiculous in the eyes of a lot of bands. Right. And it wouldn't match the music at all. But he didn't um there was never any pressure at all to not make it look really nice. And um and he's really proud of it too. And we're just, you know, I can't say enough for him and the label and and the work that Kit did as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you get hooked up with the uh, blind rage records? Well, so we, you know, nobody was interested in our last record. Nobody was interested in our demo. Um, used to people not really, you know, chomping at the bit to put my records out. So we were pretty fully resigned that we were going to put this out, but that we wanted it to be on vinyl. Right. And, you know, because we're not a label, it's that just makes it so much harder, especially when all the pressing plants for vinyl are super backed up. Because if you're a label that bangs out six or seven releases a year, you are going to go to the front of the list versus some random guys in New Bedford, Massachusetts, you know? So we knew that that was going to take a long time. We got the front cover done and um, I was sending out some advanced downloads to people and stuff. And then one day Ryan called me and he's like, dude, let's just put the record out like online today. And I was like, you know what? enough you're right yeah. let's do it that, <laughs> that was, was like it. in april yeah yeah um that was in when was that feb well that was actually in february february it was fe- february 23rd yeah and then um so we put it out online bandcamp spotify you know apple music all that stuff and the 26th the morning of the 26th uh, there's this online um, website called Aversion. It's a version line. And 
he's covered my stuff for a long time and I'm a big fan of his, um, he could be a real harsh reviewer of people's music. So I, I like that because I know when he says something good, I feel like I accomplished something. And um, so he did a write-up on the fact that we put it out online and he was, you know, in the review, he says something along the lines of like, I don't understand why more people aren't interested in this band. It boggles my mind that no label has put any of their stuff out. And I was reading it and I, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, I'm like, I think I'm just going to have like a massive nervous breakdown right now. And then, then that night, somebody in some thread posted our music and James from Blind Rage was like, wait a minute, why have I never heard this before? And at the same time, he was sort of cornering, he's been sort of cornering the market on uh, New Bedford hardcore bands. So he's, he's put out a bunch. So he's put out Holy Hands, which has um, our bassist Ryan is in that band and my old uh, bandmates, two of them now um, from the Judo Airs are in that band. He put out Stone Fleet, and uh, both of those guys are in that band as well. Um, uh, Springtide with Trevor Vaughn and Martin Johnson. Um, I feel like I'm leaving out a couple of bands, but he's been like scooping up all these New Bedford bands and putting them out. Yeah. And the label's based out of Dayton, Ohio, which is <laughs> kind of cool yeah. that he was doing that. And, uh, you know, he would put together like a right before we got on, he put together a new Bedford hardcore vinyl package you could buy that came with like four records and a bunch of pins, bunch of like, you know, new Bedford hardcore pins and stuff. So he messaged Ryan and was like, let's put this out, get me the files tomorrow. Let's, let's do it right now. And I, and we're like, I can't, can't freaking believe it. And, and for me, it was the perfect, um, it was like if I had to you know, write down a sort of dream scenario, for us it was perfect because it was a small label that had a really um, respectable, cool, interesting roster of bands. It wasn't all like pigeonholed into one style, but at the same time it was all, all cool bands and that, you know, that we liked. And, um, and it would be a vinyl run, a limited, limited run, small run, but um, cutting no corners physically. And uh, it, it was just like a perfect situation. And, um, and so, we're, you know, we've been in talks this whole time about the next things that we're doing with him. So uh, it was really exciting and really, really, really grateful to, to James for doing that and super happy to be working uh, with Blind Rage on things. So going back to the, the lyrics and uh, the song Lines in the Sand, well, for, we, first, you guys did a, a video for that that song yeah. to a, a crowd of mannequins. But yeah, it's, we. Uh, it's, a, it's a great video. We. Um, so a, a friend of mine who I've known forever, his name's Chris Duval. He owns um, an, a vintage clothing store in New Bedford called Circa. That's changed locations over the years many times, um, and he's like one of those guys where he's open when he wants to be. There's no signage. You won't know the place is there. It's an old industrial building and you just gotta make, see if the door is unlocked. And if it is, you can go in. And, um, but he's he's um, always been a guy into underground music, punk music, um, and been a big supporter of that. And he'll do like kind of past the hat shows in his, in his store sometimes. 
And the store visually is just incredible. It was actually my wife's first job was working there when she was a teenager. And um, so I got the idea in my head. I'm like, well, we can't play shows. It's the middle of the pandemic. We haven't played shows in forever. Why don't we go down to Circa and play for all the mannequins? And we'll move the mannequins up like it's a show. And Chris was totally into it. And then uh, our friend John Robson, um, much like Chris, he's uh, always been a guy into cool underground things and um, a great photographer, uh, great videographer. Um, I asked him if he would come and film it for us and he was totally into it. So that's what we did. And uh, the lyrics to a song are about this guy who's uh, become so paranoid of um, outsiders, I guess you would say, that he's kind of set up camp on this beach and he's drawn a line around himself in the sand as his boundary that he's going to defend. And as he gets more and more kind of xenophobic, he, he starts drawing the line smaller and smaller. And eventually it's so small that he's um, pressed up into his own campfire and, and catching on fire. But at the same time, the tide is coming in, but he doesn't feel safe to leave. And so he ends up kind of, you know, obliterated. And, um, and at the end is the reminder that we're all, we can all, we all have the potential to sort of be that guy. You know, um, so that he, you know, he burns up or he drowns or whatever, but not really because he's he's always there. And so that's one of those songs that was a direct result of, you know, all these um, far right uh, bozos that that briefly, briefly felt they could, you know, be sort of public and vocal. And I, I, I feel like they've realized that um, maybe they overstepped their limits because I don't hear I don't hear or see a lot of talk by those clouds anymore. So um but let's hope that that it stays that way. But if not, you know, there's things that can be done um about them. So that's that's what that song is about. And I I kind of felt that um in addition to playing for the mannequins as a reference to not being able to play for people, it was also a reference to the fact that um this guy doesn't see this narrator of the song does not see humanity in other people at all. They're, they're people-shaped objects and not people. Um, and so that's that's what that deal was. But yeah, we were, we were happy. And, you know, um, that was our first, I guess, attempt at a video for this yeah. band. <laughs> yeah. And then so the lyrics to uh, Semtex and this arc. Uh... So Semtex is... Um, I like songs that are sort of about... Um, they don't appear to necessarily what they're be what they're about. So Semtex, we wrote Semtex and we were all on the fence about it for a little bit. Well, I didn't write it. Um, the other guys came up with it and we were sort of on the fence. Like, is this song at first, at first the guys thought, Oh, this is, this sounds a lot like the Pixies. And I didn't really get that. And so and I, the way that the vocal melody that I wrote if anything, to me, it sounds more like like the gin blossoms or something, or like the you know the psychedelic furs or something, and um, and I'm like the only way to go lyrically with this is like hard in the other direction, like in a weird direction. Um, so like I like songs where like um, 
you know, the lyrics to like, all she wants to do is dance by Don Henley, where the song is about this revolution and his wife can't understand that they're going to all get killed because they're foreign tourists in this Republic that's collapsing because she doesn't want to wreck their vacation. And all she wants to do is dance, dance. Yeah. Nobody knows that that's what the lyrics are about. They, they think it's this terrible, terrible Don Henley song. Right. And, but if you Google the lyrics, it's about Molotov cocktails. Um, and they're closing the airports and the last planes are leaving. Right. And, and, you know, she wants to party. She wants to get down. All she wants to do is dance. And he's, and he's, uh, and he's like, we got to leave. We're going to die if we don't get out of here. Yeah. So I kind of went at the song that way. And I also, um, you know, nobody ever think nobody thinks that the bad guy. Right. So, you know, if you're if you're a terrorist, you think you're a freedom fighter. And um, if you're on the wrong side of that freedom fighter, well, then those same guys are terrorists. And if you know, I mean, in the American Revolution, the, the American patriots were terrorists until they won. Right. And then they were then they were freedom fighters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's it all depends on what side of the fence you're standing on. And you know, history is written by the victors. So um all it takes is you to come out on the losing side to be portrayed forever as um a terrible person who had no business attempting what they were doing. So I wrote the song deliberately from the point of view of someone who's doing something terrible, which is bombing this um club or restaurant and they're doing it for a cause that they really believe in and they're the narrator of the song and i'm not i'm not as the songwriter judging it one way or the other i'm presenting it from their point of view um, and i'm not saying that it's about one conflict or another conflict i'm saying that this person who's doing a horrific thing and is not surviving at the end of it either in their mind they're the good guy like they're doing their mission accomplished. Like I did this for love of country and I sacrificed myself and so, and they also have this delusion that someday people are going to appreciate what I'm, what I've done, right. yeah. which is a delusion from, for that all sorts of maniacs always have, you know, yeah. um, you know, if you read like the accounts of, um, you know, John Wilkes Booth after he killed Lincoln and is on the run, he cannot believe that he's not being celebrated and like, he's like, I can't, like, not even the Confederate states are happy that I did this. He's in complete astonished, I mean, absolutely can't believe that this was how it was reacted to. And because he thought he was a big hero, you know, and would be, and would be embraced as one. And so that, anyway, that's what that song is about. Yeah.
and uh, the other one was um, oh this arc this arc I wrote a long long time ago um, and it was about a relationship I was in and um, that was failing even though I still believed in it and uh, at the same time when I was done with the lyrics they didn't really make any sense to me like it sounded like they were about something else and I kept showing it to bands I was in and nobody was really interested again it's kind of like pretty poppy song so when I was recording at home during COVID because I'm so terrible at guitar I laid down a guitar track that I thought was usable when I went to sing over it I realized I had left off a whole verse while playing the guitar so I was like well far be it for me to like aim for perfection I'm going to leave it alone and just cut a verse of lyrics and when I cut a verse of lyrics suddenly what remained made perfect sense and I realized that it wasn't about that relationship at all at least not anymore it was about um my love of of music and what music means to me also in the midst of a pandemic that um that I, I will find a way, even if I can't have a band or band practice or shows or a recording studio, I'll order stuff online, I'll get better at the things I'm terrible at, and I'll still be able to make music. And that's what this and this arc in the song with the lyrics ending up the way they were, it was sort of like this um, mistake that sort of had to happen for that song to finally be finished, you know, 20 years after I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and suddenly, suddenly, I knew what the song was about because I think songs have their own um, identity and their own messages that often the people writing them aren't privy to, and that reveals itself over time to them too, not just the listener. Yeah, yeah. How does that feel as, a, as an artist to have you know, like you were saying, you know, right. maybe lyrical ideas you've came up with years ago, and then they you know sort of just showed their face a little more, you know, 20 Yeah, years. well, it's, you know, it, it, you know, I, I have, I do have a lot of beliefs that, you know, you're only partially responsible for writing lyrics or songs or music. And a lot of it is we're just sort of translating things that are, that we don't even understand the full meaning of. We, we feel them. Um, you know, it's like dreams, you know, you, yeah. you can have a dream that's really deeply upsetting, but makes no sense at all. And you're like, why, why was this so emotionally, you know, why did this impact me so much? It doesn't even make sense. Or, you know, Grimm's fairy tales don't make a lot of sense, but they've stood the test of time for hundreds of years and kids are still fascinated and we still retell them. And the reason is, is that it, it is making sense. It's almost like um, if you're not a computer programmer, software for your computer is just gibberish but when you put it into the computer it makes it allows the computer to run um you know and and i in some ways i feel like lyrics and songs and poetry and dreams and fairy tales act on us as software and our our brains are the hardware it doesn't matter that we don't understand what it means it's going to it's going to run its program and debug and and defrag things or whatever so when I leave myself open to the fact that uh, as a writer, I'm no different with my own songs. Um, I think that's when things come out the best and it, and it means that I might not know what I'm 
writing about for sure, even though it, even though I feel it deeply and I, I wrote it and care a lot about it, it might not even fully hit me uh, for years as to what it really meant or anything like that. It doesn't mean that I, I'm writing especially deep songs at all. I mean, I, I feel that with, way about all the music that I like. Um, I just don't want to take, I don't want to, I don't want to take full credit. I don't think that the craft of writing it is as important as letting your guard down enough for things to just kind of happen and not question it too much. Yeah. Being interpreted how they're interpreted by the, for the, sure. the listener. Yep. Um, so this, this, so there's a song in here, uh, that you didn't write the lyrics to, uh, my mom said, so yeah. who's, who's Ron Allen? So Ron Allen is, um, one of my favorite skateboarders who ever lived. Um, yeah. He's, he was like an elder statesman of street skating when I was a teenager. Um, I, I want to say, let's see, he's around 60. He might even be 60. And he still enters and competes in contests um, against like the youngest pros. He, he competes in the skate, the skate park of Tampa contest every single year without fail and um and gets at least some runs in without falling and 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 rips i mean he learns new tricks and it's insane like i can't possibly i i didn't skate as good as he skates now when i was 17 and um he brief briefly had a skateboard company uh called life and they put out a vhs skateboard video which is one of the best skateboard videos ever made, in my opinion, 1990, I think. And um, he had an incredible team, small team. Um, they were sort of a, a, a company within a company. So it was a parent company called H Street that gave him his own sort of spinoff company and a couple of their team members. And um, he had a band that performed two or three songs on that soundtrack. And it was just him and his friend and they were called uh, Sir Lady Java. And his friend played really distorted um, kind of arpeggio uh, guitar, very jangly. And Ron sang with heavy distortion, um, but no percussion, nothing. And that song, I feel, I felt like that song at the time um, was really haunting and everyone kind of knew it. Yeah. And I always sort of thought it would be a great song to cover someday because it never came out on an album. It right. was just this weird soundtrack thing these guys did. And I thought the lyrics were really cool. So, um, so that's that one. And I, I, uh, I wrote to him to clarify the lyrics and uh, he seemed um, happy that we were doing it. But then I sent him a recording and didn't really hear back from him ever again. So you might think it sucks. I don't know. Right. What uh, uh, what video is that that that, that they were? They... It's uh, it, it's life skateboards, and uh, the the name of the video itself is called a soldier's story. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, but but killer, and also one of the first uh, big one of a handful of the first big name African American skateboarders. Yeah. Okay. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. I was I, I didn't. I had no idea what that was. So. I, I would highly recommend. Um, I'd recommend watching the whole video, although the quality is so bad. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, it's like VHS right. camcorder, 1990. Um, it, it's up all over YouTube, but yeah. also the original, the original of the song is worth hearing because it's really, um, 
really kind of an eerie thing. Yeah. Nice. And now the, the last song, Spirits. Um, the, the, mu- the music on the second side is, is a little more moody and dark, it seems to. Um, and, and this is a, gr- a great uh, song to close the record, I think. Yeah, and I, I think it really showcases um, Jeremy's guitar playing. Yeah, uh, yeah. In, in some ways, I think this Jeremy is the um, the star of this record. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's some great stuff on here. And he he beat himself up bad in the studio to get this done. Not just this song, but the whole record. Um, yeah. Just really put himself through the ringer. And there's this like a lot of tracks on these songs of just layered guitar and. Uh, the solos and stuff that he pulled off and the guitar tone that Alex was able to help get him, you know, help him find in the studio. Um, very, very trippy and just beautiful. And um, yeah, it's in, in, in many ways, it's a guitar album, I'd say. And, and Spirits, the, the song lyrically um, is again, um, a reference to being haunted by people who you don't have anymore um, because they've passed away, but also um, spirits as an alcohol and perhaps drinking to deal with a loss. Um, so, so the chorus is sort of referencing both of those aspects of being just constantly haunted and con- but at the same time constantly plagued by dealing with things in an un- unhealthy manner and if anything i think um if you were looking at uh lyrically where the next record will be headed it's sort of in that direction it's gonna be a um you know i think i'm not alone in uh saying that i you know i lost a lot of people in the last two years or year and a half or now. I think a lot of people have, um, not just with COVID, although certainly some of that, but just a lot of drugs and a lot of um, people taking their own life and stuff and just been really, really grim. And uh, it will be hard for the next record, which we've already written a lot of, to not uh, represent that sort of heavily, I think. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and, and as far as playing live, you guys did your, uh, you, you played your first gig back in uh, September. That was the first one in well yeah. over a year, right? Yeah, and it was uh, an eye-opening experience in a lot of ways because we did it over. My my idea was let's have our big comeback be Labor Day weekend, and I'm I'm gonna book Friday and Saturday and Sunday, and we're gonna do uh, Providence, New Bedford, and Boston, and I'm gonna you know stack it up with all these bands. Or and very quickly I realized that booking bands, which is a pretty thankless job in the best of times has turned into a complete nightmare post COVID. Um, not only dealing with bands, but um, the, the turnover of promoters at clubs and booking guys at clubs, clubs closing their doors, bands agreeing to play and then backing out. Um, eventually, eventually it got to the point where I whittled down my, my, grand plan of three consecutive shows to one show at the Middle East upstairs. And I washed my hands of working with the lineup and I just put it in Aaron Gray's hands and he was struggling with it big time too. And eventually I kind of jumped back in and we got, um, mini beast, uh, Pete Prescott's band and, um, and deprogrammer cult, which, which, uh, 
that was their first show ever because the first show that they had planned to be their first show was at Kodo a couple of weeks ago, which we also played. And the show ended up being great. Uh, I, you know, it was weird, um, but the turnout was way better than I was afraid it would be. It was technically our record release show. Um, but, you know, the Middle East was exactly as I remembered it. And um, there was a good amount of people there and they paid more attention that I, I remember bands paying, I mean, crowds paying attention to bands at before. I don't know if it's maybe they thought it was special to see a band again. You know, it was just a, a weird vibe where everyone was kind of like not taking for granted what was happening. Yeah. It's probably um, a mix of that and, and just, yeah, people aren't going to just fucking hang out at a bar. You're going. No, to right. Time, you know? They're not. Yeah. They're not killing time. Yeah. Like nobody's going to, nobody's going to go see a band and not like, really want to see a band yeah. these days yeah and the club was happy um they said it had been one of their better nights since covid and we were certainly happy we sold some records and um and it was great and then we did after that we did a halloween show we played as the smiths at o'brien's which was fantastic it was a, a packed house um, all the bands were great. Another band played as uh, the Pixies and another band was Smashing Pumpkins. And um, it was great to learn those songs. It, it taught us. I've always loved the Smiths and they're hard, they're hard songs to play. And it taught us a lot about, you know, what we what we're capable of sounding like, even though we try to push that envelope anyway. It was like, oh, this like I didn't think we could sound like this. And uh and that was just a great night. And then we played Kodo uh, with Deprogrammer Cult again and uh, Bedtime Magic. That was all our second show ever with Bedtime Magic as well. Another great show, great turnout. Um, I couldn't like that venue more. Um, everybody got paid. Yeah, it was great. And Salem's just a great, great town. It's one of those places that I visit. And um, it's on a short list of places that I visit. And I'm like, I could totally live here and be yeah. happy. Yeah, I kind you of know. miss living up up there. I, I, I lived up. That's sort of where I grew up in the North Shore. And, oh yeah, and I, I mean, definitely miss it. And, and you get the feeling that it's a real kind of sense of community. Yeah, because yeah. it's not it's not a super small town, but it's not a big city. Yeah. So it's like if there's a heavy show at, in town that night, it's probably where most of the people yeah. that you want to hang out with are going. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, everyone's going to go there. Yeah, doing doing the Smith songs. Uh, how was that going into? You know, you obviously those lyrics are like me ingrained in my head from you know listening to them since I was a teenager. So that must have been cool to kind of get get right into them. Yeah, it was it was super cool. It was really cool. Um, I think the hardest the hardest uh, task for any of us was Jeremy's uh, because Johnny Mars. You know, really, he writes really difficult, almost needlessly difficult guitar parts. Yeah. yeah. And, right. I, and part of it is, too, that in the studio, he might, you know, I was reading about, um, I think it was How Soon Is Now, he said he had something like 15 layered guitar parts. Yeah. And and then live, they would play, I think their last tour, they had three guitarists on stage, yeah. like kind yeah. of two guys off to the side. Yeah. And so you think that the guitar part, that you're hearing is just this guitar part, but you're right. hearing 15 guitars. Yeah, yeah. And 
and he makes things needlessly difficult. And the bass yeah. playing is not a joke either. I mean, it's yeah. all it's all kind of hard. Yeah. Um, they're hard. They're not easy songs. So it was a good challenge for us and a, a good break from messing with our own material uh, for a while. And now we're back in writing mode. I, I think we're kind of, I think we're kind of turning down shows again. I, I think uh, be, just because COVID seems a little weird right now. Yeah, definitely. And you know that they had the whole. It seems like the slap shot weekend. A lot of people got sick from, and yeah. those were at venues where you have a vaccination card, yeah. and technically yeah. you're supposed to have a mask on when you're not drinking. Right. Yep. And uh, if it's happening there, it could happen at any show. And uh, we've we've got plenty to work on without exposing us or our families or the people that like our music to any of that stuff. So. We're um we're headed back in the studio in a couple weeks uh, to record something small that I'm not really at liberty to say what it is yet, and then and then we're we're looking to go back probably late winter, early spring to record another full length. Nice. And do you have any of that stuff together, or is it? Yeah, we've got about uh, we're about the halfway point. Yeah. I think five or six songs in right um and uh now that we don't have anything really ahead of us especially after this um this little recording thing we're doing uh we'll move pretty fast i'm pretty sure i'm chomping at the bit to write again so i haven't written i haven't written an original song since a year ago because of uh outside of some solo demo stuff um some of which will be on the next record but um, yeah, I'm really looking to write. Um, we're ready. So, and we, we want to keep the same team together, like, you know, same studio, same, same layout people, same label. Um, I think we, we got a really nice formula on the last one and, you know, we don't want to break it if it's not broken. Yeah. And you're someone who's always, you know, you can tell puts, you know, everything and your heart and soul into your music. And do you think having, you know, sort of all this, time where you're not performing live is honing that even, you know, into a, you know, you're... yeah. And, and, you know, years of years of making bad decisions in studios helps with that yeah. too. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. I get older and, uh, and I'm like, Oh, I was so stupid when we made that record. Like, why, yeah. why didn't I, why did I not listen to what this really intelligent person was saying to me who was totally right. Or, you know, I, I was unhappy with, what I did on that song from the beginning and I said nothing and now I'm living with it forever. Um, you know, so I've also been in bands that were super inactive. I mean, would play one, two shows a year, practice one, two times a year and was my only project at the time. Or, you know, you know, Iron Oak, we did one recording session you can you can hear it online. I put it up for free online a few years ago, but we never released it physically. We could never get past um, some of the personal demons in the band to ever ever make a successful recording, including the one that we did, which we fell on our faces with. And and so I'm not going to take advantage of being with a group of guys who um, are able to with their lives. I'm not, you know, and I'm not slighting anybody for past things that happen. I'm just in a spot now where the stars have aligned and it's like, all right, we can do this. 
let's write. We've got a good practice space. We're in good, you know, good places in our lives, and and um, we have some support outside of the band. So let's let's not blow it, and yeah. you know, let's keep chugging away. Yeah. Um, so, you know, thanks for doing this. <clears throat> of course, thank, this. thank you for yeah. having me. Yeah. Uh, so, if someone wants to buy this record, is it still? Uh, is it still oh yeah, available right now. Yeah. Um, blindragerecords.limitedrun.com okay um and i would highly suggest checking out all the other bands in the label because um james knows how to pick them yeah yeah um there's a, a lot of really really interesting bands um that i've been kind of snatching up that i only would have discovered because um he asked to put our record out and um and I'm super grateful that I that I found them. Vision Vision Quest, Josh Struck. He put out the first gel seven inch, which is killer. Um, uh, Clueless, Kill Surf City. Um, he's done some stuff with former members of um, Brainiac, who are all you know Dayton guys. So it's not it's not all like strictly hardcore. There's a band O Condor that's fantastic. Um, an English band called High Praise that's really good and kind of um like melodic like husker do sort of melodic punk um it's a little bit um the label's just diverse enough where we can have a seat at the table and not yeah, feel yeah. like the weird old guys oh right right yeah it's not like you're on like a thug core label yeah something. yeah <laughs> awesome and then your uh band camp page is uh the wirelines one yeah, wirelines numeral one. So wirelines one dot bandcamp.com. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. And for the listener, I would definitely search uh for the for the uh video for the song Lines in the Sand. Uh it's, it's pretty awesome. And uh there's also some footage of that Smith's set on uh Yeah, that whole thing is up there too. Yeah. yeah uh warts cool. and all, but I think yeah. for the most for the most part we did pretty well. Yeah, definitely. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again. Yeah, thank you very and, much. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, the album's great. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to hear uh, some some insider stuff on it. So, uh, right on. To get this out to people. Cool. Have a All good right. day, Kevin. All right, you too. Take care. All right.